And if you have your Bibles, we'll be in James chapter 1, looking at verses 26 and 27. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Before we begin, let me pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to gather corporately together as your people to come and hear from you. We pray that your word would sanctify us. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Titled this sermon, A Matter of the Heart. A Matter of the Heart. Not everyone who professes Christ, not everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ, has a genuine saving faith. There are such things as false professions of faith. People who think that they are following Christ when in fact they are not. James says here in these verses that not everyone who thinks they are religious has a saving faith. He says in verse 26, they deceive their own heart and their religion is worthless. Religious refers to all the external observances and practices, the outward ceremonial aspects of worship. In this context, it is the visible qualities of your life in Christ that come from a transformed heart. It's the evidence that you are born again. Have saving faith within you that evidences itself out in good works. This is how James defines religious or religion. And to put it simply in one word, it's worship. Worship. The validation of your faith is seen in your works. It is seen in your behavior and attitude and conduct in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the word of truth, in accordance with what God says. If you say you have faith, but that verbal affirmation is not complemented with real-life transformation, your faith, James says, is vain. Your faith is empty. It is dead. It is useless. There's no such thing as a transformed-by-grace faith that doesn't manifest itself in bearing good works, in bearing good fruit, that is consistent with saving faith. Christians prove their faith is real by doing the word, by obeying the word, by living it out. And it doesn't just prove our faith, it improves it, it sanctifies us, it matures us, it grows us, it makes us more perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, it makes us more like Christ. So not only does living out the word, obeying it, prove our faith is genuine, but it also improves us. It makes us more like Christ. Religion or being religious can be viewed nowadays in today's culture as an undesired term or label because of its associations with false religion or false teachers or false professors of Christ. In Acts 26 verse 5, Paul says that he lived, this is prior to his conversion, Paul lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Their religion is used to refer to a false religion. Paul was following a false religion. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 18, 
Paul warns the Colossian believers not to follow the false teachers who defraud them because they are delighting in self-abasement and the worship or the religion of angels. That there is referring to asceticism or mysticism and practicing something that the Bible does not prohibit. So religion can have a negative connotation, but it also has a positive connotation when it is defined as being pure and undefiled, when your life of worship is pleasing to God according to his word. So just because hypocrites are drawn towards religion doesn't mean authentic worshipers don't also have religion. To put it another way, just because there's counterfeit currency in the world doesn't make doesn't mean that you have what you have in your wallet is also counterfeit. Scripture speaks about a false religion, and Scripture also speaks of a true religion, pure and undefiled in the sight of God our Father. And it has to do with worship. And what is worship? Worship is a matter of our heart. Is our heart towards God? Is our heart seeking to please Him, to do His will in obedience? So worship is a matter of the heart before it is ever a matter of our outward behavior. What comes from the heart leads to our actions, and both of those things must be pleasing to God. It's not just hearing and doing, but the heart behind it. We are not only to pursue the truth, but we are to be committed to living it out from the heart. Our hearts must love God, and so we please God with the way that we live. Doers, not just hearers who delude themselves, James taught us, Real Christians are changed by the word of truth, and they are changing by the word of truth. These verses look back to what we studied in verses 18 to 25, and it also looks forward to the rest of James, what James will teach us in these coming weeks. These verses set up and provide the foundation and introduction to three of James' main focuses in this letter. James will teach us and write about the lifestyle and convictions of a genuine Christian how Christians are to think, how Christians are to talk, how Christians are to live and respond and walk in wisdom, how Christians are to grow in maturity and Christ-likeness, and really how to worship God and make God known to this world. That is why we worship God. We worship God and we want to make him known to this world. So James is answering the question, what does the life of a genuine Christian look like? What does the life of a genuine Christian look like? Rather than, how do you become a Christian? James is speaking to Christians, and he's speaking to the evidence that you know that you're a Christian. This is how Christians live, behave, and think. But there are people who say they are Christians, but they're deceived. They're not. So how do you discern? How do you know? James gives us three ways to discern in verses 26 and 27. Three areas where believers are to be doers of the word, which he just taught. And we see it right here in the text. Look at verse 26. You are to bridle your tongue, number one. In verse 27, you see that you are to visit orphans and widows in their distress. That's number two. And number three, you are to keep yourself unstained by the world. These three areas are not meant to be comprehensive or exhaustive, but they do provide an eye-opening view to our hearts. How is our worship of God from the heart? They also look forward to the rest of what James will teach us and say in the coming weeks. In chapter 2, he'll talk about good deeds to the poor and the needy. In chapter 3, he'll talk about controlling the tongue. In chapters 4 and 5, he'll talk about staying unstained by the world. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And what these three areas boil down to 
our, our words, our hands, what we do, and our hearts. Our hearts. What we say, what we do, and how we do it, and what we pursue in worship. James addresses our speech, our service and sacrifice, our care and compassion, and our sanctification and purity. This is the Christian life. What does it look like? How does it evidence itself? First, in how we talk. In how we talk. In these verses, James describes the heart of a true worshiper so that we can walk in wisdom before God and reflect and represent him in this world. That's the focus of verses 26 and 27. James describes the heart of a true worshiper so that we can walk in wisdom before God and reflect and represent him in this world. And first, in verse 26, our control, our speech matters to God. We must have a controlled speech. Verse 26 again. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, to think or to suppose there is in the present tense. This is a continual pattern of your life. This is to be what you do daily, all the time. And what are we to think? What does this person think? That they are religious. And he even says that they think themselves to be. This is who they think they are. That they are a true worshiper of God. This is a sincere desire to honor God. They come to church every Sunday. They've been going to church their entire life. They obey their parents. They listen to the scriptures and they want to live it out. But if their speech is one that's displeasing to God and dishonoring to God, it may indicate something else. To think here is the word good with the word appear with another word attached to it. So this really says that you strongly feel that you are a good person. You have a good opinion of yourself. And the New Testament is often used to refer to a, a false opinion, as it is here. In other words, you are sincerely wrong about how you are thinking. You're sincerely wrong about how you're thinking. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 says, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Do not think that you are a Christian if your heart has not been changed. It's not your heritage that matters, but it's your heart that matters. Are you living a life bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Mark chapter 6, verse 49, Jesus walks on the water towards the boat and his disciples, and it says there, but when they saw him, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost. They had made a wrong conclusion. They thought incorrectly. James said in verse 22, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Hearers were actual sincere people who listen to the word of God seeking to learn it and obey it, but they don't. They just hear. And so they had a, a miscalculation. They had a false reasoning. They had really what was is considered insane thinking, knowing what to do but not doing it. So if you think that you are a true worshiper, look at verse 26 again and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Strong, strong language. Bridling the tongue is in the present tense, and so this is to be the characteristic of your life. And it means to control it, to restrain it, to keep a tight rein on it, 
It's often used to refer to the bridle and bit used to control a horse. An uncontrolled tongue is like an unbridled horse that runs wild. And what does James conclude about an uncontrolled tongue? You deceive your own heart, and your religion is worthless. This is very serious to God. Your speech matters to God. Do you pay attention to how you talk? Do you pay attention to what you say? Do you pay attention to what you don't say? To what you text, even? To what you post on social media? All these are forms of communication, and that this is what James is speaking about. James mentions our speech in every single chapter. Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And even in chapter 1 alone, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. We are to use our speech to approach God, to talk to God in prayer, seeking his will and wisdom. Verse 13. What are we not to use our words to do? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. We are not to blame God for our sin and temptation. And verse 19 of chapter 1. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, deliberate, thoughtful, careful with what they say in response to God's word. Our speech matters. We use our tongues, we know, to sing, which we just did, to pray, which we just did, to glorify and praise. But also we use our tongues to slander, to gossip, to curse, to tear down, and not to build up and edify. It's been said, a true test of a man's religion is not his ability to speak, but rather his ability to bridle his tongue. Is he able to control his speech and use his tongue for good and edification? Words reveal character. They reveal who you are. They reveal your heart. And what is the word of God? It's God's spoken word written down and recorded for us that reveals himself. God's word reveals himself to us, and so our words reveal our hearts to those around us. It reveals our true character. It reveals our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 33 and 34, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And down in verse 37, for your, by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Matthew chapter 15, verses 6 through 9, Jesus says that the Pharisees and scribes invalidate the word of God for the sake of their tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men. Religion that does not transform the heart and consequently the tongue is worthless in God's sight. The claim and the behavior are contradictory because of what the heart reveals through what we say. You deceive your own heart because you cannot say you are religious and not control your tongue. And if you can't control your tongue, guess what you are not? Religious, a true worshiper of God. And therefore, your religion is worthless. You're self-deceived. And Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. It says there, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 
apart from the resurrection of Christ, our faith is worthless. We have no hope, no guarantee of a future resurrection. And we would 100% agree with that. And here, apart from controlled speech, our religion is worthless. Does that carry similar weight for you? Do you think that your speech is not a big deal? This is not a trivial matter. James says if you think this way and you don't control your tongue, you deceive your own heart and your faith is worthless, futile, vain, empty. And this is identified with the futility of idolatry. So you think yourself to be a true worship of God when in fact you're just being an idol worshiper. Acts 14 verse 15 says, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Romans chapter 1 verses 21 through 23. Paul writes there, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile, worthless in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. It's idolatry. Ephesians 4, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So James associates the uncontrolled use of the tongue with pagan idolatry and pagan worship. And so he describes a religion of uncontrolled speech as self-deception and as idolatry. For the Christian, the pattern, the evidence, the observable reality of your life is that you bridle your tongue, you control your speech, you use your tongue for good. You are careful with what you say, you are careful with what you don't say. So what are we to bridle our tongues from? James doesn't say. So what should we refrain from? The rest of the scriptures give us answers. We are not to take God's name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. What else are we to refrain our tongues from? Too much talking or too many words. Proverbs 10, verse 19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 17, 27, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. And there is just a cool spirit, because usually when you're brought to anger, that's when you use your words in a way that is displeasing to God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 3, let your words be few. Proverbs 13, verse 3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Control what comes out of your mouth because words matter to God. What else are we to refrain from? Careless speech. Words without enough thought. Words that don't have a filter. James 1.19 Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak. Again, slow there is to carefully, thoughtfully think through what you're going to say before you say it. James 1.19 Slow to speak. Ecclesiastes 5.2 do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Everything we do is in the sight and presence of God. 
Everything we say, everything we do, whether you think you're in secret or not, even your thoughts are not a secret to God. What else are we to refrain from? Hurtful words, harsh words. First Peter 3.10, the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Psalm 34 verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. In the context of marriage, Colossians 3 verse 19 says, husbands, and this is directed to husbands here. Husbands, your wife, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Embittered comes from the Greek word to, to be stabbed. Sharp words that stab or injure. This is talking about when you respond after being wounded by your spouse. Don't injure back ever. That's the command there. Don't respond and retaliate with words that are going to stab and injure them as well. Language, in, in a sense, is revelatory. It's an instrument that exposes your heart. And so we must be careful with how we use it. It's meant to be used to honor and worship God. What else do we need to refrain from? Manipulative or deceptive words. First Peter 3.10 again. You must refrain from your lips from speaking deceit. You must keep your lips from speaking deceit. Deceit there is the word guile, which means to be a decoy or to trick to deceive on purpose, intentionally. Someone who says things to manipulate the outcome. In an argument, when you're trying to win, you can manipulate your words to get the desired outcome. Someone who puts up a front. Someone who appears to be a friend, but behaves as an enemy. Who says one thing in front of your face, but intends it to mean something completely different. This is what it says of Christ. And and going back to that, the only way that you can know is because it's a matter of the heart. You don't know that they're deceiving you. But again, God knows that your words are being used to manipulate and deceive those that you're talking to. And this is what it says of Christ in 1 Peter 2.22, that there was not any deceit found in his mouth. We are to model our speech after Christ. We are also to refrain our lips and tongues and mouths from destructive words, words that tear down. Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Unwholesome there means spoiled, rotten, foul, gross speech and words. But instead we're to have edifying, uplifting, building up, soul-strengthening words in contrast to unwholesome speech. What else are we to refrain from? Words that take, that tear down. Instead, we are to have grace, uh, grace-giving words, the end of Ephesians 4.29 says, so that it will give grace to those who hear and not steal grace away. Steal the joy of God's favor and delight in God's grace to those who you're speaking to. We're also to refrain from filthiness, crass words, Cuss words, Ephesians 5.4, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. There's a contrast to what we're not to use our mouths for with what we are to use our mouths for, giving thanks, and not filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. Silly talk means senseless, foolish, 
dole of understanding, empty words from an empty head. Coarse jesting is sexually suggestive speech, and it's only used one time here in Ephesians 5.4. Two words put together, well and turned, meaning a good turn of words, innuendo, when you say one thing but it has two meanings, an innocent meaning and a perverse meaning, wit with wantonness. This is inappropriate, coarse jesting, sexual innuendo. Do not speak anything that would pervert the sanctity of intimacy for a good laugh or humor. Bridle your tongue when it is with wantonness, lewdness, and lust, or anything quick-witted designed to excite it. It is inconsistent with the truth. It is inconsistent with the scriptures. It is inconsistent with your neighbor's edification. It provokes potentially fleshly lust and desires in those who hear it. That is not acceptable speech to God. We are also to refrain from gossip and slander, bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart, and also listening to gossip and slander as well. Second Corinthians twelve nineteen and 20. All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, anger, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Don't just talk different, but also promote talking different. So we can refrain our lips from speaking things that are displeasing to God, but we are also to promote speaking things that are pleasing to God, especially when we hear those around us speaking gossip or slander or there's coarse jesting or silly talk or filthiness or destructive words or manipulative words or deceptive words or careless speech or too many words. We must say what is pleasing to God. What we say and how we speak speaks about our hearts. It speaks about our worship to God. So that's number one. We must have a controlled speech. True worshipers of God control their speech. Number two, found in verse 27, compassionate love. Again, these are all matters of the heart. Compassionate love, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. The second area that James says is true of a follower of Christ is that they display a heart of compassion and care and love towards orphans and widows that proves itself and is seen in helping to meet the needs of those who are helpless and vulnerable and need protection and provision. James says that this is pure and undefiled religion. Pure means clean. Undefiled means free from contamination, pollution, or corruption. They are synonyms that are used to describe what it is and what it isn't. And so James is really emphasizing wholeness there. This is what a wholehearted, devoted, undivided religion is in the sight of God or Father. This is what God sees and views as pure and undefiled worship. This is what is pleasing to God, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And to visit is in the present tense. Again, that's a continual pattern of our lives. This is to be the normative pattern, conviction, and practice of what we do and how we live. 
to visit here is not what we would think of, uh, of just stopping by for a quick visit. But rather, it is caring for others and for their needs. It is exercising oversight, continued oversight on their behalf. This word comes from the same root as episkopos, which is where we get the word for overseer. Overseers oversee the spiritual health of the church. It's also from scopos, which means, you hear it in there, it means to scope out. Intentionally scope out. Intensely, carefully examine and pay attention to. Why? Because the true heart of a true worshiper of Christ cares and is compassionate towards those who are helpless and vulnerable and need help. It means to visit somebody to deliver them from what afflicts them. God sends Moses to Israel when they are in captivity in Egypt to visit them in order to deliver them. When Israel is being held captive by the Babylonians, God visits them through the prophets who will deliver them. God visits his people in order to care and help and protect and provide for them. This is what God does. Luke chapter 1 verse 68 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Acts 15 verse 14. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about, visited, taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. This word is used to show off God's heart towards those who are the most helpless. Those who are the most vulnerable. And here it's in the context of redemption and salvation. And we, most of all, as Christians, know how helpless and vulnerable we are. We were dead, completely helpless, hopeless. Yet God visited us and saved us and delivered us, cared for us loved us, showed his compassion towards us. And we also see it with Jesus in Luke chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. When we live this out, when we intentionally, as a pattern of our lives, are on the lookout to oversee and to care and help meet the needs of those who cannot help themselves, God is displayed to the world, and they glorify God. James says we are to visit orphans and widows. The New Testament often combines strangers or aliens with orphans and widows together and calls this group the fatherless and the widow. And they represent the poor, defenseless, most helpless members of society, and God cares deeply for them. And the consequences are great for those who harm them or try to take advantage of them. Listen and hear to more scripture. Psalm 68, verse 5. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Exodus 22, 22 to 24. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry 
and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18 says, God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Malachi 3, verse 5, when the people of God have repented and come back to God, it says, then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In the very next verse, verse 6, says, I, the Lord, do not change. God doesn't change in his compassionate care towards those who are helpless and vulnerable. Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Psalm 10, verse 14, You have seen it. For you have been, you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. In verses 17 and 18. O oh Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Psalm 146 verse 9. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. This matters to God, and this needs to matter to us. This is who God is and what God does, and we are to reflect and represent his heart in this world. And how does he do that? He does it through us. It's seen as we visit orphans and care for widows and help those who are in great need and distress and affliction. We are the expression of that. Helping the helpless, visiting the vulnerable, displaying a heart of compassionate care and love that helps, knowing that we will not receive anything back in return from them. This is pure and undefiled religion, clean and free from the contamination that seeks to do in order to receive, rather than sacrificially serve as a desire of a genuine heart that loves God and understands that their reward is only because they are in Christ. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, Jesus teaches on the parable of the guests, and he says, and he also went on to say to the one who has invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you in return and that they will be your, your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What is your motivation for doing things? Is it to get something in return, or is it to please your Heavenly Father, who will reward you in heaven? 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We are to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Distress here is the pressure of severe and difficult circumstances without having any help, any protection to provide. This describes those who are in very great need. We have to keep in mind that this is not just handing out money to the homeless. It's not just seen in mere service projects to the needy. 
James is talking about a heart attitude that is determined to care spiritually and physically for those who are hurting and helpless. This idea is seen in James chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The New Testament provides instruction for the church in regards to caring for widows in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16. It defines, prescribes, warns about how the church is to honor and care for widows and help them, but it also provides instructions for how widows are to serve the church and be a blessing to the church and how they are to conduct themselves. Family and friends are to take care of widows first, and the church is to come alongside as the primary support to those who do not have family and friends to support them. Are we caring well for the widows in our church? Are we making sure that they are connected and included? Are we aware of their needs? Do we know what they need help with? Are we overseeing and on the lookout for them? And continually so. Not just once in a while, but are we constantly, as a habit and pattern in our lives, caring for the widows in our church? If we take the general principle of helping those in need, how are we doing? How are we doing? And a bigger question is, how is our heart? How is our heart towards those who are in need? God's heart is one of unchanging care and love for those who are helpless and vulnerable, just as we were helpless and vulnerable and dead in our sins and trespasses. And he came to visit us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from our sins against God, to pay a debt that we could not repay. By his grace and mercy and love, he laid down his life in our place to satisfy the wrath of God for all our sins, to protect us from the wrath that is rightly due to us. And he resurrected from the grave to validate his power over sin and death and his victory over it. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to bring you from spiritual death to eternal life if you repent and believe that Christ is the Son of God whose perfect righteousness was filled, fulfilled in your place. It fulfilled God's holiness and whose death fulfilled God's justice in your place. That he is the only Savior who can deliver you from your sins. And if you trust in his accomplished work on the cross, you will be saved. You will be saved. God's heart of love is put on display through our lives as his children. We make him known in this world, not just through what we say, but how we behave and how we act and how we care for those who are helpless and vulnerable. When we show compassion and care and help the helpless and visit the vulnerable. Controlled speech, compassionate love, James says, reveals our hearts. It reveals God to this world. It reveals that we are true worshipers. And there's one more area that characterizes true worshipers. Number three, 
Verse 27 again, Christ-like purity. Christ-like purity. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is personal purity and holiness. This is the pursuit of Christ-likeness. This is being filled and walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. When the Greek unstained is in the primary emphatic position in the front, because that is what is being emphasized. Unstained, keep yourself from the world, James says. This is also in the present tense. This is to characterize and be a normative pattern, conviction, and practice of your life that you are being unstained by the world. You are as a lifestyle to keep yourself spotless from the world's contaminating influence. You are to protect yourself from the encroaching mindset of a demonic culture and of a depraved world. World here refers to a system, a design and structure of this world system as governed, ordered, and led by Satan, the god of this world. First John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are to keep ourselves unstained from the world system that is anti-God and that dishonors God while we are in the world. We are here for a God-intended good purpose, to make him known. John 17:15. Jesus prays to his Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. We will be impacted and influenced living in this world, but we will also impact and influence because we are not of this world. We have been set apart to be distinct people in this world, doing the Father's will, making him known, proclaiming Christ. Our priority must be to worship and glorify God. That is how we keep ourselves unstained by the world's influence. James chapter 4, verse 4, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And it's been said that friendship with God is hostility towards you. It's hostility from the world. And as followers of Christ, we understand that there's suffering that comes with with knowing Christ and following Christ and believing Christ. We suffer for Christ's sake. We are to live in this world as slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ doing our master's will. Our complete allegiance is to him alone. We are to be hearers and doers of the word of truth. Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Titus 2.12 instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And 1 John 2.15 and 16, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. Martin Luther has said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, suffers nothing, is worth nothing. There's a cost to following Christ. That's discipleship. You have to be careful where you step, how you walk, how you live, what you say, what your heart reveals through your actions towards those who are in need and towards our own individual lives as we pursue Christ-like purity, and holiness. 
There's a game that a lot of kids like to play that I've recently found out. It's, I don't know if this is a universal thing, but when you're at a park and you, or a sidewalk or playing somewhere where there's lots of lines, kids will only want to walk on those lines because everything else around them apparently is lava. If you fall off of those lines, you're dead. You fall into the lava and your life disintegrates. So you must be careful that you only walk on those designated lines. And it is so for the Christian believer. We must be careful with every single step that we take. Again, through our speech, through our actions, and through our pursuit of holiness. Following Christ step by step, according to his will, according to his word, because we do not want to step off of that path. Because we know what that stepping off of that path will bring. Destruction, death, condemnation. It's dishonoring to God. It's displeasing to God. And so we must pursue Christ-like purity. Being aware of the world's influence. Being aware of the contaminating power and staying away from it. Avoiding it. Fleeing from it. And when you do get stained by it, quickly returning to Christ. Repenting and confessing. Cleansing yourself from it. You keep yourself unstained by the world by focusing on following Christ. This is the pursuit of holiness. And again, holiness is a matter of the heart. Pure and undefiled religion is not focused on anything that comes from the world. It is focused on pleasing God, living honorably before God. Genuine faith is validated in a proactive priority to be holy, to be pure, to be uncontaminated by the world. Second Peter three fourteen. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Diligent. Effort. Labor. Intense work. Energy expended to follow Christ. To turn from sin. 1 Timothy 6.14 Paul charges Timothy to keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an ongoing pattern of our lives to the very end. Pursue this as a practice of your life until Christ returns or until it's your designated time for Christ to take you home. So James has talked about bridling the tongue, visiting orphans and widows in their distress, and keeping oneself unstained by the world. And all of these areas address our hearts. They address whether we have a false religion or a pure and undefiled religion. They address how we are worshiping. Is it idolatry or is it true? Do you have a deceived heart and a worthless religion or a pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father? Are we following the word or are we following the world? Who do we follow? Who are we influenced by? If the world has a greater influence on you than Christ does, there's something wrong there. Godly religion, according to James, is a matter of the heart and holy obedience to God's word that reflects and represents and puts the beauty and love of God on display in this world through grace-giving speech, compassionate care towards the helpless and vulnerable, and pursuing Christ-like purity by being more influenced by the worship of the God over this world than by the God, lowercase g, of this world. Who do we worship? 
Why do we worship? And is that evidenced through how we live our lives, through what we say, how we care, and what we do? Are we seeking to be more like Christ each and every day through each and every step that we take and less and less influenced by the world around us? This is true sanctification. This is true growing into Christian maturity that James has been speaking to us about and teaching us about. And we thank God for his word that he has used James to give us these instructions so that we may walk in wisdom, that we may evaluate our own hearts and our own walks before God and know that the path of wisdom is in following Christ, in fearing God and obeying his commandments in all that we do, say, and think so that we are not deceived. And if we are deceived, the good news is found in, the, in God's word as well, that he will receive you if you return to him, repenting of your sins, and by faith in Christ through his work on the cross, you will be saved. He's merciful towards you, patient, long-suffering. So this is the time. If you are on the path of false religion, idolatry, turn to Christ. He is willing to accept you, receive you, and help you, and deliver you, and protect you from any and all wrath that is to come. And you can be his child, and he can care and continue to care for you because his love is unchanging. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it lays out for us instructions for godly living. We thank you that it exhorts us, it encourages us, gives us hope. Now I pray that your spirit would draw our hearts to obedience to it. That we would see and think about how we use our tongues. That we would think and see if our hearts are pure and compassionate towards those who are in need. And that we would see if our hearts are seeking genuine holiness and godliness as we walk in this life, in this world, as those who are to represent and reflect who you are and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who need help, spiritual help. We thank you for this time. Would you increase our faith in you, increase our obedience to you, increase our love and worship of you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.